So now gentrification is actually the reverse of that, is the reverse of white flight. It, it is now reclaiming or colonizing. I, I don't know the right, right terms here and pardon your audience if they don't like my phrasing about this. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This week, I have Anthony Bush. He's the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at my high school alma mater. It's been a pleasure to get to know him over the last year and see his work in action we uncover a lot and go over the fundamentals of what diversity and inclusion education looks like in a high school setting. And we also managed to have a lot of laughs and some beautiful insights about this crazy world that we live in. Enjoy. And we're live. Good morning. Good afternoon, Anthony. How are you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank yeah. You yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm stoked you're here. So for the people who are unfamiliar with you, can you give us a little introduction on and who is Anthony and what are the things that you do with your time? Yes, sure, <laughs> sure. So uh, my name is Anthony Bush, born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Uh, came to PA for college in 2007 via a Posse scholarship, which is a scholarship, a merit-based scholarship that recognizes young students in low-income areas and or students of color. And really started to get my foot feet wet with American studies, uh, social justice concepts via Dickinson College and that and that scholarship. When I graduated, I was trying to figure out, you know, where was my career path setting me forth? Um, and I landed in education. I taught special education, algebra and English for eighth grade and seventh grade for the first two years out of college. That was 2011 to 2013. Stayed in the education space, moved to uh, New York to continue my teaching career at a high school uh, with the same charter school. And then around 2016 was just looking for things that really centered the the undergrad experience, right? American studies, I, I'm focused on uh, race, class, and gender. Um, and the climate at that time politically was shifting given the nature of the 2016 election. And so I got into the diversity space and kind of started to pilot programming that centered, uh, obviously, social justice with students uh, focused on a social justice course, and then with our colleagues focused on professional development, unconscious bias training, things like that. Reached the ceiling in around 2019, was trying to kind of figure out what my next steps were. Um, And then I came to apply to a a private school out in Philadelphia, which you (laughs) happen to go to. And (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I ended up getting the role during a very tumultuous time. I was hired in early January, but didn't start till March of 2020. And obviously, we all know the pandemic kind of start, started shortly after that. So I've been kind of navigating a pandemic in a new role uh, in a new city, um, in a new school, and trying to just kind of keep my head afloat with all of the kind of challenges that we've been navigating these past uh, year and a half for, you know, the racial justice components, but also the the isolation, social unrest, things like that. And then my downtime, I'm a dancer. Uh, I was trained in. Oh, nice. Art. Yeah, yeah. I'm a hip hop dancer. Um, ambush underscore dances. If you feel like following me, that's my Instagram. <laughs> um, and I also love video games. So I am a huge gamer. That was one thing that Kate kept me kind of occupied during the pandemic. And then outside of that, now that the world's opening back up, I'm traveling again. So those are kind of my biggest passions. I like skiing too when it's winter, um, but I don't like winter. So, you know, those are kind of juxtaposed. 
But yeah, yeah, yeah. Here I am, kind of multifaceted, just you know, kind of <laughs> 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 layered. That's dope. Yeah, was, okay, awesome, man. There's there's a ton to to dive into there. Let's just let's turn back the clock a little bit and getting back into that decision you made of education. I think that's always a really interesting thing to hear about because education isn't, you know, the sexiest of industries, right? There's a lot of challenges around getting a paid a living wage, for example, for a lot of teachers in this country, dealing with parents and kids and all kinds of complications from home and, and being a caretaker as well as an educator. So why do you think you were attracted to that space as a young person? Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to be honest. Education was definitely not my first choice. I had wanted to go into the teaching field when I was in high school, but then obviously when you get to college, everyone's like make money and figure stuff out. And there was not really a clear pathway for my major and a career that really fit all of those variables. I ended up moving in with one of my friends and her families. um, And I just needed a job, honestly. And was kind of looking at all of the experience that I had acquired via internships and things like that. And and education really was kind of the field that was, it was the most fitting for what I was was doing in, in my experience. So I, so I went for it, did capital teaching residency in Washington, DC. And it wasn't until I got in the classroom where I realized like how serious the need to stay in the classroom was. Um, even though we were serving mostly black and brown kids, I was one of like three black men uh, teaching in the building. And the the first year of my career was also under the guise of kind of the inception of Black Lives Matter. February 2012 is when Trayvon Martin was murdered, obviously. And there was this just kind of alignment in, in terms of my skill set and my interest in kind of still continuing to serve students. And I just stayed. I just stayed, honestly. Um, the money was good enough to, you know, to feel like my career was being validated and, and all my work efforts. But I think building relationships with my first set of kids, working in the special education space, and then also serving a very low income area kind of showed me that there was a need in this industry that I, that I love to fill. And I kind of fell in love with it. So um, it wasn't like a calling, but at the, when you find what you're meant to do, you kind of, you know, commit to it. And so I've been in the education space for now 10 years, um, which is kind of crazy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that you did find that calling because I've seen the the benefit of your work in, in my own community. So I'm happy that happened. And then you mentioned too, in that journey to, to where you are now, there was a moment where you felt like you were kind of maxing out your potential at the, at the role. Yeah. And I think that's applicable to a lot of people because throughout our lives, there'll be moments where we have to, you know, not call it quits, but decide that this, this present engagement isn't serving me anymore. I need to go for something greater. So talk us through that decision, if you would. You know, How did you know it was time to move on? And, and what do you think the implications are for people who you know, have a life change going on in their lives? And, and you know, what would you tell them about that? Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. Um, so I had been working kind of on a volunteer basis in the diversity role at my school in New York for about four years, give or take. Uh, the first year was kind of a pilot year. The second year was really uh, giving me an opportunity to lead whole school programming, found that social justice program uh, for our students and kind of just get a little bit more immersed in the equity space. Uh, I became an equity facilitator with TFA and I started also trying to consult with other with other schools. I, I led a professional development series for Young Scholars Charter School, actually, which is a school that's based in Philly. And after about a year of programs, there was just kind of this rolling 
uh, sense of accomplishment and achievement, not to toot my own horn, but there I was featured on uh, the cover of Dickinson Magazine, which is my alma mater. I ended up receiving an award from KIPP NYC for the work of social justice. And then I was able to, I applied to give a, a, a Kush talk, which is our version of a TED talk with Posse. And all of those things happened within three months of each other. Like each, each one was kind of just rolling and rolling. But I was also working in, in my school doing, you know, special education, dance, study strategies. I was, you know, helping to support with algebra and things like that. And it just felt like super exhausted. And I was like, you know, I know what my passion is now. Like I, I it took me a while in, in the educational space to find diversity, equity, inclusion. But once I did, it was very hard to go back. And nice. the funding in my, in my district uh, in New York, not that they didn't want to grow and develop me, but there was just not a lot of funding for it. Um, and so in that 2020 school year, it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I can't, I can't go back to this, you know, this unfulfilling portion of my, my role in education, not feeling like I'm utilizing my passions, not feeling like I have a seat at the table in terms of leadership and my own potential. And there were, you know, a few naysayers in, in my, my, my ear saying like, you know, you don't have leadership potential, you don't have this. And I think those doubts kind of propelled me and kind of made it so like, let me show you what I can do and see if you still are going to talk like that uh, <laughs> afterward. And it, it was a leap of faith. It was definitely a leap of faith. I came across the school's website that I work at now. And just took a chance. You know, it was it was a lot of the roles that I was looking at in New York were kind of HR based, not really leading uh, content or diversity training was more in recruitment and hiring, which is still a great, you know, aspect. And that's it's a part of my work now. But the full functionality of what I was hoping to bring to a school was really encapsulated in in my experience. And so it's been kind of a a rewarding thing. It's been obviously super scary because started March 9th, everything closed down March 12th. So I was literally in the building for like three days. And trying to, you know, engage in a community that you don't know and then lead them in anti-racism work when your entire country's on fire is challenging. Um, yeah, oh my God, yeah. Yeah, but there was a lot of faith. Yeah, right. Like, but there was a lot of faith placed in me. The mission of the school kind of speaks to social justice as it, as its core. And I think my kind of unique perspective of engaging and programming that tries to really center allyship and, and empathy was a, was a way that I was able to tap into a lot of my strengths and they kind of trusted me to to lead them, and and I've been very supported. Took a pay cut, you know. You know, you have to kind of take a chance. I feel like um, I'm like, <laughs> not sure if you've seen Wayne's Exhale, but there's this um scene in um when Whitney Houston is talking to her mother on the phone. She's like, you know, I took a I took a, a pay cut to see if I had what it takes. Um, and I think you have to kind of be in that space of like tapping into your talents and seeing what is the most fulfilling. And you know, obviously, if if you can find something that you know caters to your interests and, and you go with the money, that's great. Um, but for me, it was more about seeing if I had what it takes to actually live in administration and, and be a good role model. Um, and I, th- I think so far I've been doing a pretty good job. So very proud of that. Very proud of that. Thank Epic, you. man. Awesome. I'm proud of you too, man. That's a big Thank jump. You. Thank you. I have a few thoughts. One thing just to go f- full circle on that like development line is that the lesson is like you had a lot of good signs. You were getting positive affirmation professionally. You know, you were, you were succeeding and you took a chance in yourself, right? Basically, instead of staying in the comfort in the comfort zone where you weren't going to grow as much, you went out and got a new opportunity that you said you deserved and you used your doubters as motivation, which is incredible. I think like that is a, a universally applicable mindset and journey, right? Like anyone listening right now could have something they want to go do, a dream they want to chase or a professional goal they have. Yeah. So that's just, I just want to point that out. That's like a great... blueprint yeah yeah for sure so then conceptually building out diversity and inclusion programming sounds 
really interesting just as like a logical or as like as like a as a mind trick of like like building it out because it doesn't exist maybe or it's something you have to create from scratch and like if you don't have it's not like building out curriculum for right. the school year where there's 300 years of you know precedence right so so how do you how do you even start that whole process of, of building out and wrapping your head around creating a, a curriculum for for a school like that yeah great question So I was thinking about like, what is the roadmap to cultural competency and fluency? If, if you're engaging in social justice work or you have any interest in that, where do you start? And really it is about self, like really learning bias. What is your worldview? How does it shape your perspective on political thoughts, beliefs, patterns, right? How do you show up in the world? When you do show up in the world, who do you center? Who do you decenter? And I think kind of getting of the, your feet wet in terms of where you are in kind of this process, right? How have you been socialized to view the world, take up space in the world? What are you privileged by? What are you, you know, challenged by? Or, or um, maybe what are some of your oppressions? What are the aspects of your identity, right? So your class, race, gender, sexuality, gender uh, performance, or identity, all of that kind of factors in. And then you kind of build a scope and sequence of questionings between what does power look like within this setting of a community or this portion of an identity. If we're talking about race, we're talking about gender, what does disadvantage or oppression look like? And then what is the history of it? Right. And then from there talking about how it manifests in present day. So once you start with the unconscious bias piece and kind of getting your understanding of how you show up in the world, then you can really utilize the concepts of power, privilege, and oppression and the history of that and also the present day examples to build out different units. So we start with race because clearly that's it's the most accessible one when you're thinking mm-hmm. about how it shows up in the United States specifically and, and Western world, right? Via transatlantic slave trade and things like that. And it also is the only identity marker that intersects with each and every single other one that we're talking about. And so I think through that line, you kind of figure out, well, what is the fluency development that our community needs, right? We were, I was teaching in an all black and brown setting when the curriculum was developed. So we started with race, um, then we went with gender and then sexuality and then class. And then when you go through those few, you try to figure out, well, what else can can grab them to think about power, right? And I think building a, a scope and sequence off of socialized identities is is really that that blueprint. But the sequence of it, uh, of it can can be a little tricky, right? So it was a lot of creative ideas. I was bouncing back and forth with uh, one of my friends, Skylar, um, who was really helping me kind of just as a thought partner develop the curriculum. And then, of course, seeking feedback from women, obviously seeking pe- feedback from some students even. Um, but I think my experience in American studies kind of gave me a deeper insight into kind of the appropriate pacing and sequencing of which identity markers we really wanted to center. And then the goal of it, right, is intersectionality, which is a concept talking about how do all of my identities kind of fold into each other that make up who I am and how I show up in the world. So you actually bring it back to that unconscious bias piece. But now you have all of the other aspects of your identity, or at least a window into some of them, the history of it, how it's been privileged with power um, or how it's been, yeah, how it's been privileged with power, how it's been oppressed potentially, depending on how you identify. And then also what does it look like in today's society? And I think that roadmap for me was a very clear path to develop a curriculum that was more accessible for students. I think it's much harder when you're engaging colleagues or professional people like who are adults, simply because everyone's fluency is at very different places and everyone's investment is in very different places. Right. Mm -hmm. And so matching that scope and sequence is much more challenging, but it's important work. And this is next to dance. This is something that I've kind of just fell in love with. Um, And so I think it's important that you have that kind of patience to meet people where they are, but also kind of pull them along and challenge them a little bit to think about how, how are we going to challenge you to develop your fluency or deepen your fluency 
And so that's kind of the the process that I went through. Nice. Thanks. Well, wow, that's, yeah, you painted a very nice picture. And I think it's cool too, because it kind of gets at that whole process of figuring out what are my identities? How do they interact with each other? How do they impact my experience in this culture? It builds empathy and self-awareness and humility, hopefully, right? And it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I, I, I like that because a lot of times the people, the, the detractors from this kind of work who just label it as liberal propaganda or, you know, making more divisions when yeah. there don't need to be any, whatever, whatever the argument is. I really feel like, like almost anybody could go through that process and think about truly honestly think about, you know, what's my identity and, and how does it impact my day-to-day lives? And then, and then be a little more empathetic, even if they're not ready to go out, you know, and buy a BLM flag and hang outside their window or whatever. I feel like almost anyone who would do that exercise and be a little more self-aware and a little more empathetic and a little more humble because I don't know, I this like, I've never met someone who, who does some self-work and some self-reflection and comes out of it like more combative. <laughs> yeah. Very, very that, very that. Yeah. But it's that entering in, that's the challenge, right? It's that, it's that, right. do they even have an interest or want, or are they willing to enter into that space? But absolutely. I think mo- most people after that development, I mean, your, you know, your viewpoints might still be what they are, but there is a little bit more empathy. And I think that is one of the premier goals of this work because sometimes we don't see each other's humanity. And so we're just coming at it from these preconceived notions or stereotypes that we have of one another. And we're missing the person piece, right? Like, we're not saying all of this stuff so that we could just talk. It's because our rights are being infringed upon or there's a history where we've been oppressed and, and we have a platform now to, to do something about it and using our voices is one way. So, For sure. So for for somebody listening, say they're in the professional setting and they want to you know, start the conversation at their workplace or in the friend group, you know, this would be, this would be white people, right? Yeah. Who I'm referring to like, do you have any resources you could point them towards or, you know, things you recommend like a starter pack for getting, <laughs> yeah. getting involved? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There are various places you can start. And I think that any book focused on the entry level of social justice, anti-racism is a super important. I can't say her name correctly, but Ijuma, Ijuma Aluo, I think. So you want to talk about race is a great starting place. She presents the argument of anti-racism in a way that's super accessible, super honest and transparent. And I think it's a, a great starting place in terms of navigating that. There's also Heather McGee's that the, some of us, um, which talks about kind of the cost of racism on all parties, right? So thinking about the, the, the ways that it actually undermines and challenges um, us to think about equality because of the way that it pits people against each other, right? So the consequences of, of racism for white people, but then also obviously the the implications for people of color, uh, queer people, things like that. Both of those are great texts to start with. Um, Ibram X. Kendi is obviously, you know, uh, stamped and anti-racist or how to be an anti-racist are great places as well. It's more just about what is the focus of the conversation? Is, is it introductory or is it trying to like learn the history of things? And depending upon that, I would say, you know, it depends on which, uh, which one of those resources you're really trying to center. But if you're kind of in the introductory spaces, so you want to talk about race is a great, a great starting point. Um, and then from there, there's, you know, a myriad of, of texts and things that have come out. White Fragility specifically uh, for white people by Robin D'Angelo. 
um, is fantastic. She kind of normalizes the idea of race, not racism, not being a thing someone is or does, but how do they participate in it? So each of those is kind of just the introductory text that I would use. But of course, there's, you know, there's several more um, out there. Um, The New Jim Crow, I'm forgetting who wrote that now, and I feel horrible about that. But that's a great text talking about kind of the systemic history of oppression and how it kind of slavery lives throughout the prison industrial complex. Um, If you're kind of looking for more of a visual form, um, then there's the 13th on Netflix. Um, That's a great one as well. There, there's there's several resources out there. I can probably give you a, a list of things afterwards, and hopefully we can some find a way to like link it to the. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll put okay. in the show notes for sure. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, because yeah, I think the more we normalize those titles and get it out there, the better. So personally, I'm at the point with it where I'm on, I'm leveling up my understanding, right? Like I'm, I'm reading, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and now I'm thinking about personally, like how do I want to approach it because. I'm really interested in policy, like public policy and the laws of our country and the judicial precedents and thinking about if it's a systemic problem, I, I'm, I think it needs to be a systemic meaning like within the system solution. So I'm kind of figuring out like the balance between, all right, I live in San Francisco, like I moved, right? I left Philadelphia, I moved across the country and now I'm in this like very gentrified city and I feel like I should kind of get involved there and like at least give back somehow. But then I'm also thinking about there needs to be a lot of structural changes about like making voting more accessible. Sure. And even the whole system, the whole, this would be a good one, you know, I ask you about like the whole system of how our public schools are funded by property taxes. Exactly, that is that even changeable? Like, is that something we can change? Because I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why? Why is it that way? Because it's, it, the the communities that don't have a lot of money, if their kids aren't going to schools that are well funded, they're going to have few opportunities to get into the higher paid economy, and the, it perpetuates, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question. I am super long winded, so I apologize if I take up too much time with this one. But I think it's important to to understand at least how the current state of education came to be. The New Deal. You know, army vets are coming back from serving in, in World War II, I believe, and they're given these grants. And you start to see middle class black families moving into historically white spaces. Whiteness at this time was being navigated by Polish um, and Italian Americans who are kind of gaining whiteness through classism and saying basically that, well, you're more affluent and you look closer in pigment to us. And so you are going to now be elevated in terms of how you're socialized. And once community, once people of color started moving into more affluent neighborhoods, that's where the concept of white flight came from. They started this concept of redlining where they would zone different districts depending on who lived there and how much money was in those communities, right? So white collar neighborhoods were like the best of the best. They were probably green, yellow, you know, maybe somewhat blue collar families, but still white looking people. And then red lines for, for the people of color, right? And eventually all, not all, but many white people took their resources and moved to the suburbs. So you actually see a reverse uh, aspect of gentrification happening in that timeline where, you know, the suburban area started to really, really thrive. And you started to see all these, you know, well-to-do communities popping up and, and lower end communities, specifically, you know, cities 
we're, we're deep, we're underfunded, right? And there's an intentionality around, well, okay, if we can redline this area, then it's a bad neighborhood. We don't give them any resources. They're poor schools. And then there's the cyclical process of oppression and lack of resources that then further perpetuates inequity, right? Or inequality. The, the irony now is that we're running out of spaces in the suburbs for people really to be cool. So are, are cool with that kind of lifestyle. And so now gentrification is actually the reverse of that is the reverse of white flight. It, it is now reclaiming or colonizing. I, I don't know what the right, right terms here and pardon your audience if they don't like my phrasing about this, but um, <laughs> it's, it's really the, the reverse of white flight and that you are now pushing out the low income people to now elevate the quality or the, you know, the life quality of that, um, that neighborhood. Right. But without fair housing um, access, without intentional programming or policy that, that doesn't eject low income people of color out of these spaces, you're, you're going to now see them on the outskirts of wherever else they can go. And now these historically underfunded schools are going to start to be well-funded because there's more property taxes, right? We have higher income paying people, being able to afford these spaces. And so I think it's about an intentionality of if we're going to go the route of gentrification, what is the inclusive aspect of that? How do we make sure that low-income people of color or people who have historically lived there don't get pushed out so much where they they now are on even a more severe form of oppression because they don't have access to these new spaces that we're kind of making, right? I, I saw that like in, in, I think 2018, they were trying to make Harlem called Soha. And it's like, okay, no. Don't do that. But when you see the Whole Foods popping up, you know that there is a, a process of gentrification happening. And the question to ask is, what is happening to the people of color who live there? What is happening to the low income people who live there? And how do we keep them there in a way that where we can still elevate property taxes and, and kind of improve the quality of the neighborhood? But we want to continue to give them access to the educational spaces or pay them back in a way. Right. I mean, reparations and, and can look like a whole bunch of different ways. It doesn't look like just giving every black person in America, you know, a million dollars. It's about how are we making sure that we're creating an equitable lens through the new issues that we're seeing when it comes to gentrification or things like that. Because frankly, high middle income people of color are also gentrifiers. When I was first moving into DC, you know, I wanted to be in, you know, a, a community of color, but I was making a lot more money than maybe some of the other people that were living in that building. And it was, you know, my apartment was renovated and not all of the other ones too. So it's not just a white thing anymore. High income people um, or middle class people, right, are also in a very interesting position in terms of how we are advocating for policy so that we're, we're not uh, repeating perpetuating, further perpetuating these cycles of oppression. So it, it's it's a very tricky situation, but I think at least that fair housing aspect of it could could be a way where we're not we're not replicating those cycles of oppression in present day. For sure. Yeah, like that's Sorry, that was a lot. No, that's great. I mean I, I like that because it incorporates city planning and I like the idea of like we're looking forward, right? Like this is like what you just outlined is a solution that looks forward. It doesn't look back. And I think that's something everyone can get on board with because the idea is that we're building new urban spaces, new buildings, and, and these cities are becoming the built environment is being updated. So how do we figure out a way to let everybody get involved? And not, not even everybody, the people who live there, like how do we not just box people out? Because you know, the, the capitalistic argument is that free markets, mm-hmm. you know, prices go up, quality goes up, people get priced out. That's just the economy. That's just capitalism, which is by the definition. Yes, that is 
how our economy is structured and that's, that's how it works. But I feel like every, not everyone, but a lot of people, these middle income, high income people who move into neighborhoods then miss or feel the loss of the original community. Because if it's just the same bubble, the same exclusive click that is now in a different zip code, it's not better. Right. right. It's not, it's, it's not a different experience really. It's like, okay. Like I, I see it in San Francisco. Like, you know, I'm in a rent controlled spot and it's, it's a very developed kind of like posh, not posh, but yeah, there's a lot of nice stores. It's like, it's right. like, it's like, how is this, how is this different? How is this better? If, if everyone around me is still the same type of person I've been seeing right. for X number of years. So I don't, know, I think that's something everyone can get behind because, you know, even if it doesn't, trigger the emotional sentiment of I'm just, dis- I'm displacing people. Maybe it'll trigger the just interesting, like, do you, do you, do I want good food? Do I want good music? Do I want different types of film and art and dance and slam poetry and stuff? <laughs> That's the, why one moves to a city, right? Yeah, is to get yeah. those experiences. <laughs> like the cultural melting pot idea, right? Where we're all kind of right. borrowing from each other and enjoying, enjoying each other's cultures. Right. And I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And it's nothing to, to say that you're a bad person because you want, you know, a higher quality of life, but you also have to think about, right. Like who are you displacing in that? And how do we make sure that we are not, you know, unconsciously displacing people or contributing to their oppression. And I think in, in this way, like you said, having that just kind of awareness can even better help you advocate. You can go to your city council meeting and say, Hey, everyone in my building is new now because none of the uh, previous residents can afford here. What's happening? How can, how can I get involved? And everyone has their own access points. Right. And I think it's important to know that we all have a part to play in this. If we didn't have allies in fights for equality, we wouldn't have got anywhere. It took, you know, white allies in civil rights. It took men to help, you know, push feminism along and kind of understand the difference. Not that, you know, you center the more privileged folks, but you, you, you bring them to the table. It's, it's, you can't preach to the choir and think that you're going to get a new message, mm-hmm. right? Like everyone mm-hmm. who's there, if they, if they're really immersed, they know what's going on. It's about the people who are not aware of what's going on that need to be in those spaces and really learn too. And so it's about that openness, like you were saying earlier, um, that I really think changes the game and hopefully prevents us from, you know, repeating history in a way that, that further displaces people. For sure. And that's something you taught me, man. Absolutely. Just the, to speak up and to not be, afraid of overstepping or overdoing it because i think there there are a lot of well-intentioned white people who you know they have the sentiment they care but they are hesitant to speak out or hesitant to you know step out and 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 even this happens socially too like it happens say someone sees a cute person they want to talk to but they're afraid to go talk to them or they're you know, they want to answer the question in class or in the meeting, but they're intimidated to speak up in front of the boss. Like whatever it is, it's human nature to to be hesitant. You know, these things take courage, but you know, what you taught me is that like the whole reason this is still going on is because there's not enough people in the position of power or who have been benefited by the society, white people teaming up and being allies and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lend my voice to this fight. Um, so that's an important message I think for everybody to, to, to just wrap their head around. Oh, thank you, man. And I appreciate that. And I mean, and, and the beauty of, of coming to a space like this and being able to meet people like you is that there is an investment, right? There, it, there are those well-intentioned people uh, who, uh, who care, right? And who want to lend their voices. And I think that is 
incredibly inspiring because when I was in my previous institution, it was a lot of like people of color leading the fight and serving students of color and trying to bring well-intentioned white people, right. Who just didn't really care or thought like I'm teaching in the hood. So I thought I am doing the work, right. And not seeing how some of their blind spots were further perpetuating oppression, right. And in, in those spaces, but coming to a very privileged institution like the prep, but then seeing members of, uh, of alumni who are, especially the younger alumni who are like, you know what, no, this is not right. I, I know my Jesuit education prepared me to stand up in solidarity with folk. And I may not know the right way or how, but I know I'm, I'm here and I want to be a body that supports the work. Right. And I think that also teaches me why you stay in spaces like this, right? Because it's one thing to be in communities of color doing the work and further uplifting and, and kind of serving that, that group, but without tapping into those that are more privileged, whether it be, you know, by, by race, class, gender, sexuality, whatever the case might be, we're only going to get so far. Right. And so I think you've also taught me that there is a beauty in staying in spaces like this because working with white people, working with straight people, working with high income people, and building on their fluency then teaches them how to show up in, in their perspectives fields. Right. And so I think that's also amazing. So thank you as well. Heck yeah, man. It's all good. We're, we're, we're walking in the same direction here as a culture, hopefully. Absolutely. I hope so too. I really hope so too. So this is a timely one as well. There's a ton of, you know, it's, it's more just the creation of the news cycle, but you know, critical race theory has become to the fore. Mm hmm. So I'll give my synopsis on, on what I've picked up from it. And I'd like to hear your, you know, your opinion. So, or your perspective. So basically my understanding of critical race theory, like it started as, as a, a legal framework, you know, a legal theory, but basically it's just the idea of considering all the things we've talked about, the history of our country, you know, the systems of power and where resources and influence and power was allocated and, and who was denied it things we've talked about with everything post world war two and post emancipation. And then just keeping that in mind and kind of, you know, keeping that centered, if you will, and, and and not ignoring it and, and pretending like we live in a colorblind society. And then I think, you know, the, there are people who just don't want that conversation to go down and they are using examples of individual teachers saying things like delivering that message in a, in a, in a poor way and using that as the example of why it shouldn't be discussed. So like mm-hmm. there, say there's a, a grade school teacher somewhere in the U S who says to the class in a, in a very unnuanced way, white kids, you should feel guilty for being white, you know, or, or however say that happens like, you know, cause people are human. It's a complex topic. Yeah. The del- delivery can be bad. Yeah. Say that happens. Then that is used as the soundbite. Right. And that is used as the, the, the rallying point of people who don't want to incorporate that framework. So my question is, say there's someone listening who, you know, doesn't understand what critical race theory is and is, is agitated by it. Can you like speak to that? And then more importantly, there are probably things that the, you know, the corporate news media cycle isn't telling us that are way more important about this fight than, than critical race theory. I feel like critical race theory is being used as like a flashpoint and mm-hmm. it's almost probably distracting from something else. Yeah. Definitely the first question first, just because education and like, that's where I come at it. And I do, you know, I come at it from like a more of a grade school perspective in terms of how I speak about these issues, just because being an educator in high school, not that I don't have the competency to, you know, speak at a higher level, but I just kind of have these fundamental ways of kind of making it a little bit more accessible for folks, right? So 
Think about the inception of this country. In order to participate fully as a citizen, you needed to be a white Anglo-Saxon male who owned property and who what was white, right? Like he, or Catholic or Christian, something like that. And virtually every societal institution that was set up was created for these types of people, right? For, for centuries, right? Women couldn't vote. People of color couldn't vote. People of color weren't even considered people. Native Americans were completely displaced and there was a massive genocide on their, their parts, right? And when you think about a country that was set up for Christian, white, high, like high income uh, men, you then are creating institutions that are not built for other people who eventually are going to get access to those spaces. And so it's irresponsible to think that the legacy of racism or exclusion does not manifest in present day, right? It's irresponsible to know that the history of the Ku Klux Klan is has similar ties or has some some aspects of ties to the police system, right? And that members of who were cops were also members of the KKK. And if, if there wasn't any issues of racism, inequality, why would we still be talking about all of these things today? Why are we still seeing disproportionate rates of deaths by a virus that, you know, doesn't really care who you are or what you look like? We're still seeing the ways that racism and the history of racism plays out in our healthcare systems and education, in housing, and all of these aspects. And one thing that I would also say is that there's there's this resistance to accountability in the United States that I've, I just don't see in other spaces. It's like if Germany never dealt with the Holocaust and just completely ignored and told, you know, Jewish Germans that, you know, we never dealt with that or, or we're, we're moving on. We're like we're going forward in history and we're not going to we're not going to talk about that anymore. Like right. a part of their education system is actually seeing the spaces of uh, internment camps and and where Jewish people were held and and the brutality that was that was being enacted on these people right and for for some reason in the United States we just have this resistance to to really accept our history as something that was real and valid and one thing that I always felt in in school was this whitewashing of 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 the real history of America I didn't know about the Trail of Tears actually a name for Trail of Tears in terms of the American the Native American genocide. And so Ms. Zeitlin, shout out to Ms. Zeitlin, uh, Taft High School. And, <laughs> and and she just she just gave me the real. She was this white woman who was, you know, just super powerful, really immersed in giving us the truth and giving us the real. And I think that kind of eye opening moment of like, what? Like we we didn't like pilgrims weren't nice to Native Americans. Like, you, you know that in, in life. But I think not being aware of that. At, at an eight, as, a, as an eighteen year old, a seventeen year old, and going into college with all of these preconceived notions about the beauty of of the United States and this false sense of equality is a lie. It's frankly a lie, and we're not going to get to a, a place of understanding, of empathy, of allyship if we're not being transparent. It's like a parent trying to teach their their kid a lesson, but not holding them accountable when they make a mistake. So you cheat on a test. And you're doing good, Jimmy. You're you're doing good, uh, Alexa. Right? Like you're not you're not going to actually teach them why that's incorrect and why you don't do it again. That's that sounds like the dumbest thing ever, right? How do you learn if you're not willing to hold yourself accountable? And so, in a very right. matter way, I think that is the issue: is that there is a there is a true history of oppression, genocide, racism, sexism, homophobia that is that is wrapped up in the history of the United States, and we want to put a veil on it to make people who 
are not the ag- aggressors in history, right? Like you live in present day America, so you're not responsible for slavery, but you should understand why slavery negatively impacted people of color and how you might be privileged because of that, right? And I think that there's just this, there's a lack of um, intellectual honesty in, in the United States that prevents us from really holding ourselves accountable. And I think that's the biggest detriment to to having very honest conversations because we're not getting the same history. We're not getting the same um, understanding of of how this country has perpetuated hate and violence onto marginalized communities. And then the second thing I think with critical race theory is in terms of like what's not being talked about in, in the news cycle, it's frankly like global warming. The world's on fire. Uh, you know, the Amazon is burning at an insane rate. We may not even be able to really sustain ourselves within our lifetime um, in terms of a habitable environment. And I think COVID, while it, you know, did a lot to reveal a lot of systemic inequities, the, the most urgent thing as a human race that we need to think about is climate change. It is insane. The weather patterns, the types of, you know, natural disasters that are occurring, the temperatures in certain regions of the world. And we're ignoring it. We're completely ignoring it. Companies are still expanding. Amazon is just basically went into fucking space. Excuse my language, but he went into space and we have like global issues impacting us. Not that you can't do what you want with your own money, but like, it's kind of insane to me how we're, we're this far gone in climate change and that, and that talk and people are still willingly denying it as if it's not an immediate threat. And then you're going to have a kid. And then what are you going to do when your kid is 30 and they can't live or even go outside because it's too damn hot? to go to the grocery store. Like, what are we going to do? And y'all want to keep having <laughs> it? Like, we all have a part to play in this and we can't leave it to the next generation to figure out because they are not going to have time. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry. My, again, ramble and that's great tangents but that's a great point and and you just gave me an idea for a future episode too to have someone well-versed in like the climate on it's a great point man because we really don't talk about it it's not it's the i think it's there's some there are some parallels to the race conversation because it's like it's like a majority of americans agree acknowledge i don't know what the current statistics are like post-trump but like right Maybe this is just my anecdotal bubble, but the majority of people in my conception understand that climate change is an issue, but we just get caught up in our own lives. We're not, it's not a priority because we're such a instant gratification culture. It's hard to commit to a workout plan to improve our health, you know, let alone think about something as massive as the climate. Right. And the parallel to race is that a lot of people have acknowledged that you know, there are inequities and there are, there is something wrong here, but it's kind of easy just to get caught up in the rat race and not center it or prioritize it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and again, of course, systems of oppression even manifest through climate change. Think about New York City. The highways in the Bronx go through the city, whereas the highways in Manhattan are on the, the periphery, right? Like they're, they're on the outskirts of it. So you have the Hudson and I forget the other one, but they're on the outskirts of the city, not impacting the air quality of Manhattan. And yet Brooklyn and the Bronx have the highways going right through. And that's why there's increased asthma rates and you know, just poor, poor health conditions. And so it all, it all is connected. It all is connected. And I think we need to start thinking about every issue in society through an equitable and inclusive lens, because I think that's where the true strategies and, and policies can really enhance and help save us. Um, not just us, but all people. Right. Um, so, yeah, for sure. And, and, and not repeat the same mistakes that <laughs> we've collectively acknowledged 
our mistakes. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. Awesome, Anthony. So we'll move the the pivot to the last last phase of the pod here, the three things game. Okay, cool. So this yeah. is a knowledge and, and wisdom sharing game. We each get one question and we answer it. Um, so what month is your birthday in? Uh, April. April. Okay. So I'm up first. My birthday is sooner. So I'll read my question and then you'll have a, a different one. Okay, cool. Cool. Okay. What are three things I have learned about food is my question. Nice. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I love food. Number one, it's the best way to gather people. I love cooking a meal and having friends over. And it is just such a nice way to show I care about you. I'm going to prepare this meal. We're going to sit down, nice glass of wine. It's just a perfect way to get people together. And it's very uh, universal, right? Everybody eats. So that's a nice way to do it. I'm going to piggyback actually off of one of my, uh, one of my girlfriend's friends. Shout out Rola. This was her answer from another night. I'm going to steal it. She was talking about how food is a manifestation of culture and the way we eat in the U S is often so sustenance oriented. And it's, it's like part of my day to eat, not part of my experience. And then kind of what happens with, this is my synthesis of her answer. Like what happens in other cultures and other places is that food is much more experiential. It's much more part of community and the lived experience. And it has more meaning. It has like, these are the recipes that have been in our family for generations. And then, and kind of like what happens in the U S sometimes in anywhere where there are immigrant populations is that, you know, that experience can kind of be commodified and cheapened by not honoring the, the history and the, and the culture that it represents. So that's just kind of interesting thing to think about bringing awareness to that and then kind of like respecting the culture, the food came from. Absolutely. And then number three this tomato sauce, baby, all day. My favorite dish. I will make tomato sauce for the rest of my life. And I hope I make it for you one day, my friend. <laughs> well, considering that spaghetti is legitimately one of my favorite meals in the world, I'm super basic, <laughs> but I love it. So definitely am not super curious to taste it because I love pasta. I love, love, love pasta. And tomato sauce is definitely up there. I mean, I can, I used to be able to eat tomatoes like out of a, um, like a nine packet whole. And my mom would try to cook tacos and I'd be like, I ate all tomatoes. I'm sorry. Uh, so yes, I, I'm down for that. <laughs> Epic. You're in the right city too. A lot of good Italian food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Philly's got great food. Okay. What are three things you have learned about family? Ooh, that's a great one, actually. And what's going on, there's a lot of stuff going on in my family right now, but I'll keep it keep it in the positive aspect. Um, I've learned that family is not always blood. Family is not always mm-hmm. blood. Sometimes your chosen family can be even more impactful in your lived experience. I've learned that even regardless of the hardships that you've endured in your family, you should always honor where you come from. And so holding those relationships and trying to find meaning in what the relationship looks like, you know, post life, post, you know, childhood, things like that, and, and how you maintain those connections um, can can serve you in thinking about how you show for others. Um, and I, I think that the last one is that you don't have to hold on to the hardships that you've gone through to move forward in your life. You can take them as learning experiences um, you can take the lessons learned from your, your childhood or, or the bonds that you have with your family and make peace with the good, make, or make peace with the, with the, with the, with the struggles maybe, but try your best to hold on to what, what keeps you coming back or, or the positive, um, aspects of your childhood or, or your relationship with your loved ones. Cause I think a lot of times 
depending upon, you know, your, your lived experience as a child, mine was fairly challenging. There's still so much good in what my, my mom tried to do for me and what my brother and I experienced. And despite, despite the challenges, right, I, I became a pretty decent person. And I think they had a, a really great role to play in that. And so even though we've gone through some challenges, they, they, they fit, they feed me and, and show up how I, they inform how I show up for others. Um, and I think that's, that's incredibly important. Those are my three things. Amen. Amen. Well said, man. Yeah, that's, that's a great perspective. And I can relate as far as, you know, challenging family relationships and, and negotiating, you know, things that I don't agree with and, you know, with my family and things that it's for me, it's been a process of like, not judging because it's kind of like, it's kind of what I realized an experience where it's a tough, it's a tough spot because no matter how much you disagree with your family, they're always your family and you only get one family. So it's kind of like a rare experience. It's like a rare situation where you don't really have as much control because like you can't get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's good well, you that. can, but that's like a sad life. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. everyone, everyone wants, family bonds. I don't think anyone's like this. I never want to, you know, have a good relationship with my mom or my dad, unless, unless of course, right. Like it was a struggle, but even then you probably wish that it was a, a more positive experience. And so for those of us that do have people that we can come back to loved ones and family members that we can still sustain relationships with, like it's, it's, it's something that I think everybody universally I, ideally wants. So absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Awesome, man. So I know you have a consultancy and you have your own business. So Yes. Where can the people who's interested in your services uh, find you? Um, LinkedIn is probably the best place right now or um, via email, anthony.m.bush at gmail.com. I'm still in the early stages of my business development. It's called Equity Ambush. Uh, basically, I have a consulting firm that works with nonprofit-based uh, institutions, primarily schools, um, leading anti-bias training and a cultural competency pedagogy. So it's kind of similar in terms of my role um, at the prep. Um, but it's a way for me to kind of work with smaller contract schools uh, who are who are interested in doing similar work. So email me, tap me up on LinkedIn. It's Anthony Bush at LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, and thank you for having me. This was amazing. This was absolutely amazing. Agreed. Yeah, super dope. Thank you so much for the time, man. What a conversation. Thank you so much to Anthony. What a ledge. I'm going to give him ledge status in my book. He's doing incredible work in my community and if you have a nonprofit or a school that you also want to bring him in for check out his linkedin he does amazing work thank you all for listening this week my ask is to get the show out to someone who you think would enjoy it i really appreciate that and it'll help grow our little community here we'll see you next thursday on the bro new bro podcast